it's John Cherry here. The question today, why is future-orientated leadership so difficult and so rare? I explore that a little bit more in this podcast. So today, I'm chatting with Rowan Belchers, advisor to CEOs. Um, you've been doing this for a long time working with CEOs, coaching CEOs specifically on leadership, um, helping them become better leaders or maybe just unblock certain things which is preventing them from being great leaders. Sort of. I, uh, I think about impact. So yes, I help them unblock. Yes, I help them work on their leadership ability, but it's very much to the end of how can leaders use their leverage? Because the CEO in particular has got extraordinary leverage. How can they use that leverage and how can they use their businesses to create impact in the world? That the big institutions of the world these days are businesses. There aren't armies, there aren't churches, there aren't you know, those sorts of institutions. Businesses really have it all in their lap. And so the thing that excites me about business is that it can actually change the game these days. Mm. But a business can't change the game without a CEO being very, very aware and alert to their potential. And right. that's kind of my rallying cry. So I think we're having this conversation at a really interesting time. The world is changing. Um, there is a lot of discussion around what kind of impact business is having, whether the impact is perhaps too much of an impact. Should business be allowed to have such an impact? Is that positive? Um, how should business be measured? How should business contribute to society? And there's a lot of debate uh, which is going around. Are, are you finding that in, in the work that you do with CEOs? Are they starting to say to you, listen, Rowan, we're kind of under pressure here. The uh, the hordes are starting to gather with their pitchforks. What are we going to do? You know, how do we how do we change our, our tune? How do we change the narrative? Here? Yeah, it's a super good question, John. Um, the the territory's changing. Well, I guess in my view, quite fast, but over the long arc of time, maybe quite slowly. Um, and what what I'm seeing is that businesses' identity is starting to change, meaning the story we tell ourselves about ourselves is what identity boils down to. So businesses come from this history of being a profit-making vehicle. And the problem with that was it had a very narrow focus and anything outside that focus could and usually did get impacted negatively. Now, and this is the game-changing realization that business is coming to is that if they take a, a holistic view of performance, and when you speak about the pitchforks, that's in the context of performance, what they're realizing in a beautiful sort of synchronicity is that performance is driven by wisdom. Wisdom doesn't tarnish performance. And if you take stakeholders into account that you haven't taken into account before, that's performance enhancing. And when CEOs or businesses get over that bridge, then the whole game changes. Mm. And that's what excites me, is that this new 
there's a new definition and formula for performance. And for the competitive people of the world, like myself, who are attracted to performance, it's a super interesting topic, in my opinion. Mm. Sports performance, family performance, business performance. Yeah. There's a ton of depth that is yet to be explored around um, what businesses do with this performance. Mm. I don't think... Um, look, I'm an optimist, sometimes bordering on naivete, but I, I choose that because I think kind of that's what the world needs right now. Mm. Um, and there are many businesses that haven't come around to it, but the, the businesses being led by younger, younger CEOs who have been exposed to things that, are, say, a 65-year-old or 70-year-old CEO hasn't, they just see the world completely differently. And so I don't have to work that hard with them to make that point. Mm. With older CEOs who haven't sort of um, explored or interrogated their worldview on why their business exists at all, that's a harder conversation to have. Mm. Probably not for me to have. <laughs> so what do you do in those instances? And I know we've had this chat before because I kind of asked you... Uh, from my perspective, when dealing with people who are in a very specific position and clearly their mindset is stuck in a different era and you're wanting them to progress and you're kind of saying to them, well, here is, here is a better route. Here is a, a better way of doing things. Uh, if we had to follow this route, this is what the future might look like. If you had to stay on the route that you're on, <laughs> Let's paint that picture, which is not as uh, as positive. Uh, and I asked you, do you wrangle them there or do you just wait for them to reach that point themselves and, and go from there? Oh, such a good question. I could go on about this topic for ages. Because one of the things as an advisor or a consultant or a coach, mm. when you exist in the broader territory of help, which is what all of those fit into, help is very nuanced. Mm. You know, you there's underhelping, there's overhelping, there's wrong helping, there's helping driven my, by my agenda, not their, you know, it's an absolute right. minefield. Yeah. So over time, I guess, oh, John, I don't know if I've got one way. I think I use my intuition quite a lot mm -hmm. because I don't think you can necessarily figure out the person you're helping through cognitive means alone. I think mm -hmm. you've got to sort of sense into it. But my sense, net, net, is if, if you take a CEO and you give him or her time and space, which are the two commodities CEOs don't have, mm. if you give them time and space, the quality of their thinking mm. and the quality of their being improves immeasurably. Right. And as those layers of stress and fear, because there's, there's a ton of fear in business, mm. as those layers start coming off, it reveals a much wiser person, a much more aware person, a much more empathetic person, a much more insightful person. All these sort of meta skills mm. come to the fore. And when, when you're in that situation, then you're dealing with a very fertile landscape. Mm. But it's not that easy to do, frankly. You know, to get a CEO to give themselves time and space, that's mm. not that easily accomplished. Right. And what are some of the tricks? Because I think now we're starting to hit on something that's really interesting. So as you said, time and space. I remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, I read a very interesting article about Steve Jobs. Everyone always references Steve Jobs. But one of the things that he set time aside for, which in his own words was nothingness, 
So he set time aside to do absolutely nothing, uh, which I thought was a very interesting space because from nothing, obviously, you can think clearly, you can start to tap into a different level of clarity in the way that you approach the world and you, the way you approach mm. innovation and creativity. And exactly as you're speaking, um, giving CEOs time and space to think, uh, that alone, funnily enough, it's just, you know, thinking is creativity. Uh, if you're thinking for yourself and you're actively participating in the idea of thinking for yourself, not just going through the motions and doing what is expected of you, then interesting things start to, to come up. So how do you do that? If you were advising a CEO uh, and the CEO said, you know, Rowan, I just don't have time. I don't have time in the day. How on earth am I supposed to carve out time to think and do nothing? How? how? What, what is the secret there? Yeah, John, it's such, a, it's such an interesting one because I often find myself caught between two options. Yeah. The one option is to try and tactically crack the CEO. And I don't mean that in a harsh way. I mean crack through some barriers and the other on the opposite end of the spectrum is just to be my unedited self and let that flow and I I think both have their place but they're quite polar opposites and as an advisor you've got to be quite clear and clever Mm. about which you are choosing and and playing that out so so that's sort of the terrain that's the landscape or the spectrum Um, I think the CEOs are generally ambitious and competitive. Mm. And I think appealing to that is a helpful way to go. One of the things I do is I talk about blind spots. Now, when Steve Jobs is talking about nothing, nothingness, I think a more accurate term would be stillness. Because when you do nothing, your brain starts not doing nothing. Your brain starts, as, as you said, creating. Your body starts feeling itself again, coming back to itself. So it's definitely not nothing happening. Mm. It's stillness that opens the portal mm. to all these other good things. Mm. Creativity, thinking, opportunities, innovation. You could go on forever. Yeah. So what I, try and do to, uh, what I try and do for them, and I actually use the sentence string, is I say, John... I'm going to paint you a picture of how I think this is going to play out. And when I say this, it's their current situation and their current business. And sometimes that's a rosy picture. Sometimes it's sort of military medium and sometimes it's really bad. And I try and be honest about what I'm seeing. But more important than that is just appealing to their sense of what lies behind your blind spots or beyond your blind spots. Mm. Because it might be a completely new strategy or it might be the awareness that your current strategy is broken Mm. or it might be an awareness that you are broken. Mm. You know, all of these things are massively, massively impactful on performance. So if we go back to that old chestnut of performance, this stuff really matters. When your central nervous system is fatigued or overwrought, your quality of thinking goes down the toilet. Mm. And, and this is data. This, this is science. It's proven. So to be monitoring your central nervous system and to, or at least be in a place where you can connect with your central nervous system to observe it, that's super helpful in, I guess, unlocking some of those blind spots. Mm. And in that opportunity comes from a bottom line point of view millions and millions and millions of rands and dollars and pounds mm. it, it 
they are that impactful. To be pushing a broken strategy versus interrogating that broken strategy and changing it, I mean, you could add zeros and zeros and zeros onto that choice or that decision or that realization. But it takes a lot of confidence to let go. Because to let go of a strategy that everyone has bought into and to literally say, right, I've had (laughs) some silent time. And as a result, I've realized that we were on the wrong path. And to now convince other people that, yes, you're not crazy. You haven't. uh, Yeah. So I think, I think what comes up for me here, John, is the the notion of time horizon. So in the old days, the time horizon for a strategy could be any, any, anywhere between two and five years. Mm. No way can that be the case these days. So the, the behavioral pattern or the expectation from a board that a strategy is a rigid, fixed thing that you're going to follow through on come hell or high water, I think, I think the understanding of strategy is changing. And, you know, strategy for me, this is another rabbit hole we could head down, but we'll try not to. Strategy for me, the metaphor I use is a heat-seeking missile. You've got to go to where the opportunity is. And if the opportunity takes a hard left on you, your company's got to take a hard left too. And it doesn't matter how carefully embedded and thought through your strategy is. If it's lost relevance or if it's suboptimal, mm. it needs to change. Yeah. And I'm not making that sound easy. That's, that's a tricky thing to do organizationally. And when you've got an organization of 70,000 people, it's particularly tricky. Mm. But, you know, that, that fear thing really keeps CEOs muted Mm. it's a scary thing when you publicly trade it it's an even more scary thing um so it's a it's it's a minefield as you can hear yeah so i'm excited now because now we're stepping onto my terrain which is foresight um and i suppose exactly as you say strategy and the pressure to deliver on a strategy is quite you know the time horizons are, are short they are narrow and as you say if something changes, you as a CEO now need to move quickly. But in some ways, that also potentially speaks to a lack of imagination in viewing the future. Because if you are so surprised by a radical shift, then you are not taking looking into the future seriously. Yeah, so um, peripheral vision is a leadership term that I, I bang that drum a lot. Yeah. How to see around corners. You know, that's kind of what CEOs are being asked to do these days. Yeah. And it's hard anyway, but in this fluid world, it's doubly hard. Mm. So how, the question then becomes, how do you, how do you develop peripheral vision? Mm. And the kicker for me is to tap into intelligences you might have not realized you have. Yeah. So most of the intelligence that is applied in the corporate realm is cognitive intelligence for good reason. Mm. But it is not the only intelligence we have, and it is also not the most reliable intelligence we have. You know, the, the great psychiatrists of the world called it the monkey mind for a reason. It's filled with bias, with ego, with... Um, it's... It, it hops around 
all over the place, yeah. which is, you know, both our, our special character trait as homo sapiens, but it also is our downfall sometimes. So when you pull other intelligences in, like heart intelligence, like intuition, like sensing, all of those sorts of things, that's how you develop peripheral vision. But none of those intelligences come to the fore in a busy, rushed world, which mm. is where the stillness comes in. Yeah. Now, Naval Harari, I'm looking at Sapiens on my um, bookshelf. Mm. He takes two months off a year, whole months, to do his thinking. Out of that thinking, his content emerges. While that's not doable for most people, particularly CEOs, there's a lesson in there mm. of how to quieten yourself so that all of these opportunities and blind spot erasing, all of that comes into play, that, that needs to be done so that you can engage with your future in an intelligent way. But as you know, the future is a really vexed thing. People have a strange relationship with it. It's really hard to predict. In fact, it's not predictable. You can only relate to it or respond to it. And I think in a nutshell, and, I, and I'd be really curious about your views on this, but in a nutshell, I don't think the approach that CEOs have now allows them to have a healthy relationship with the future mm. because it's too responsive and it's too under pressure. Right. Yeah, look, my so in my opinion, if you are somebody who is a, a leader... And it depends on where we're talking about and what kind of company. But you didn't get to that position because you didn't know stuff. You got there because when you were at university, you finished your degree cum laude. You probably have a degree which is in science or accounting. You're most likely a CA or a lawyer. You have built your reputation on the back of knowing stuff. You know stuff. You are an expert in knowledge. Now the challenge with the future is that there is no knowledge of the future. It is the realm of um, uncertainty. Mystery. It's mystery. And also not just in, in the sort of wanting to predict things, also how you can define the future for yourself. It's open. It is an open playing field. Now you're asking somebody who is schooled over the last 40, 50 years in being an expert knowledge worker to now say, oh, actually, now what I'm doing is making decisions where there is no knowledge. So they try and, I suppose, wrangle some form of knowledge into the future and say, like, I will now predict, you know, this is the, this is the way. Rather than saying, actually, because it is the world of uncertainty, there isn't just one future. There are many futures. So let's understand what the futures might look like. We are completely humble because it's out of our control as to how these futures might unfold. But here are the various strategies that we would deploy under these conditions. Uh, and now you have to go to people and say, well, we don't know. You know, there is no, we don't know. It's, <laughs> it's impossible to know. But here's what we think. Here's what we imagine. And how much do the analysts not like that point of view? No, I mean, it's, it's the worst. Yeah, so... If, if you're an analyst, like, it's... What? I'm going to say to somebody I don't know, you must be out of your mind. Exactly. And, uh, and that sort of... Um, what is it? Modesty? Or... Uh, I can't quite find the word, but... CEOs aren't encouraged to be that way. No. 
They are not humble. Humble, humble yeah. That was yeah. the word I was looking for. Right. That kind of humility is not encouraged. So there's a couple things going on here. Firstly, systemically, the, the environment that business sits in doesn't allow business to be uncertain. Right. Problem. Second of all, and I'm going to just expand on this point a little bit uh, because it illustrates the intelligence that CEOs have but which they don't use, which I call systemic intelligence, where you can look at a whole bunch of things around you, your customers, your people, your strategy, your culture, and you can make them sort of dance together. Mm. CEOs don't allow themselves to think that way. But yet, when I start working with CEOs to build the skill of um, systemic leadership, the first question I ask them is I say, hey, John, describe your family system right now. And they're like, well, my wife, she's doing okay. Or my husband, he's battling at the moment. My one kid, doing well in maths and science, not relating so well to his sister, a little bit low in it. They can describe the whole thing. Mm. But when it comes to describing their system, their work system, that's just shut off. So that's another thing to bear in mind. The third thing to bear in mind is the difference between fear and curiosity. So the thing about the future is that net-net across my CEO landscape, I would say it's feared. Wow. Hmm. But if you can transition the fear to curiosity, Hmm. the whole game changes. Because curiosity gives rise to opportunity. Fear just gives rise to damage limitation. Hmm. And those two worlds are starkly, starkly different places to reside in. Yeah. Um, and if we get back to the quality of our full intelligences, your intelligence, intelligences come to life in the presence of curiosity and they deaden in the presence of fear or anxiety mm. or stress. So you can see that, yes, it's a very, very tricky situation for CEOs, but there is a skill set that awaits them that actually helps them deal with this in a, in a more productive, positive way even a way that adds lots of zeros to the bottom line. Mm. So I'm going to put you on the spot here because I love a little story. Um, Have you got, just uh, off the top of your mind, a case study of how that happened, where you worked with somebody who was an analyst, who was fearful of the future, and through coaching and through working with them, they shifted and things opened up? Yes, I've got a great story about that. Um, I'll keep names and business names out of it. Um, but I worked, I am working and have been working for the last three years or so with a CEO who processes meat, but lots of meat. Um, this particular kind of meat, if you eat it in South Africa, it's got an 85% chance that it came from this place. So it's a very large business, billion, billions of rands in revenue. And um, the nature of meat processing is that it's really tricky because you've got meat coming into a processing facility. You've got to do it quickly and get it out. And if there's any kind of holdup at all on both the front end or the back end, you've got a problem that can bring a billion rand plus business to its knees in weeks, literally. Um, So, and that's not taking into account listeriosis and all of those things that South Africa's had a problem with recently. So this CEO, and if you listen to this podcast, you'll know it's him. Um, and I hope he'll be okay with that because I'm, speaking of, I'm going to speak about him in glowing terms. Um, he 
he had, for very understandable reasons, let the stress of his work sort of flood him. And so everything was about responding to the latest crisis, and the crises came early and often. And so what that did was it just dulled all of his, not all, but most of his optimism, his hope, his creativity, and his business um, exists in a in a industrial part of the world that you know it's not Santon or downtown Cape Town. It's a hard hard place to work, and it all just felt really granite like and rocky. the the uh, The word that I use, and for any anyone listening to this who's not from South Africa, this is really going to confuse you. But there's this wonderful word called knarsflakte in Afrikaans, which I think I shared with the first time I met you, which is the sound that wagon wheels make going over rocks. And, you know, everyone's got a visceral sense of what that is. And that's what their business felt like. It was just one rock after another, hoping this wagon wheel didn't break. And um, what has happened after two or three years of work is that the layers have come off. And in the layers coming off, it has revealed adventurousness, great success, not only due to this work, but in part due to this work, um, optimism, aliveness in the business, ambition that wasn't there. It's literally like a different place. And if I had to, um, if I had to describe it, it's like it's, it's like its resonance is its energetic resonance was almost flat, and now it's alive. It's like vibrating, um, and you know it's still the same business with the same people in the same place, but it's alive. And so, if that business can do that under those conditions, then any business can refine its alive self. Mm. Because we are, we are built as humans. We are built to be excited and alive and forward moving. That's our natural state. So when we aren't in that natural state, it's just because we've been in, around a set of conditions that takes us out of it. So humans can respond quickly. You know, the, the, the old adage in my work of um, change being but a decision away, that's really real. And so for me, who's a practitioner of growth, that gives me massive optimism so that anyone can shift anyone and more I assume that they're now more innovative they're finding new revenue streams financially the business is I assume doing much better much better but that for me isn't even the most exciting part the exciting part is its future and all the financial performance that comes with that and all the impacting of society around it you know, I, I work with an incredible business in Ribe Castile who employs 550 people. That's the whole town, basically. <laughs> and, um, you know, that, the fact that they are a great business doing great things, what that does to the community around it gives it vibrancy, it gives it wealth, it gives it hope, it gives it training, it gives it all of these things. So along with this particular company who I was describing earlier, along with their great financial performance, along with their future that looks rosy and the people that they're impacting, the big deal for me is that they're casting this net of healthiness around them. And when that happens, when businesses start seeing their ability to do that, 
then I think we are going to be in a game-changing situation where business finally finds its truest and purest voice. And I don't think we're even close to that yet. Yeah, because business is the greatest vehicle for redistributing wealth that exists. Uh, a good business will employ people, it'll pay them salaries, it'll create wealth and prosperity for all of those people, it'll put value into communities. That's a great way of uplifting society. And businesses are efficient, John. They really are. You know, they, if you look at what a business does, they try to hire good people, they try to train them well, they try to track their numbers of, you know, their financial forecasts, they try to predict the future. Now, those are very performance-enhancing conditions that aren't applied to... If, let's take schools. You know, I've worked with some headmasters before who are like the schooling equivalent of a CEO, and it was astonishing how little they thought about the things that CEOs thought about. So, you know, there's real opportunity here to get the person in the driver's seat to change their business to change their broader community mm -hmm. that's i mean you can i'm people on this podcast can't see me but i'm literally jumping around in my chair with excitement about this because that is what i think the world has in store for us yeah. business finding its purest highest voice yeah and i love your um, association with uh, sports when we talk about performance um something that i was thinking about is uh, a story about the 2000 British Olympic rowing team. And understandably, uh, the British invent a lot of sports, but they don't seem to be very good at them in the modern era. I don't know why. It's just uh, it's, it's a crazy thing. Uh, so the British uh, men's eights, let's call it for what it was, they, they hadn't won an Olympic medal since 1912. So it had been a very, very long time. In 2000, that rowing team decided that they were going to have one goal. So they had one future ambition, and that was to win gold. But they knew that in the, in the years leading up to the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney, Australia, that there would be challenges along the way to, to winning gold. Uh, and I guess this comes back to the fact that things change in the environment and business needs to shift. They need to, to move around. The, the problem is, is that in the moving around, they don't necessarily achieve that long-term vision or what they really want to, to develop into. They, they flip and flop, flop around. So knowing that this was a potential danger in them achieving a gold medal at the Olympic Games, they created a, a one-word or a one-sentence check so when they were confronted with a decision, they would ask themselves, will this make the boat go faster? That's all they asked themselves. Will this make the boat go faster? So Saturday night, all of their mates were saying, hey, let's go for a drink, let's go for a beer. They would ask themselves, will this make the boat go faster? No. So then they don't do it. On a Saturday afternoon, if they had to do an extra hour of ergo you know, in the gym, will this make the boat go faster? Yes, it will. So the chick, uh, so I'm going to challenge that a little bit. It's a wonderful story. Was that the Stephen Redgrave book? No, he, he was in the no, fours, no, I think. No. Um, okay, so I'm going to challenge that a little bit. And this brings up the, um, the art of performance. Right. Because performance requires art and science. So you've described the science, right? Mm -hmm. But I could argue that 
on the tenth night out, when when said rower had said no to nine nine nights out of having a beer with his friend, I would argue that the tenth night out to go for a beer might in fact be performance enhancing and might make the boat go faster because it's appealing to other things. If as a rowing eight for four years before the Olympic Games, you, you rip joyfulness out of your endeavor. For me, joy is absolutely a performance-enhancing attribute. Does that mean getting blasted with them? No. Clearly, it doesn't mean that. But this is the thing about performance, and it brings this, the, the nuanced skill set of a CEO into play, is that you've got to be able to say, on that 10th invite to go out for a beer, Actually, might that be the right thing to do here? And that's where the intelligences, multiple intelligences need to come into play mm. because it can't just be linear and scientific. That doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So it's a relationship with, you know, John, uh, sorry if I'm going down another road, stop me. But um, what I wanted to say as a really, really important point is to highlight the quality of thinking that is important that is required to exist and succeed in the world. People think that thinking is just something that happens. It's not. You can get really, really good at thinking. And a lot of really good text out there dedicates itself to how to think well. Mm. And what it boils down to is eliminating bias, eliminating some of the stuff I, I, I mentioned before, past patterning, blah, blah, blah. I could go into that. Mm. But actually, to think well is probably the number one skill I would say anyone who wants to succeed in this world needs to have mm. to think well businesses boil down to only three things thinking relationships and conversations mm. that's it yeah yeah and I again I, I think it's it's such an important point because I'm sure people that listen to this they go yeah now we've heard that before we got a you know quality of thinking yes but let's just unpack what that means. What is quality of thinking? Because part of what we discussed before we, we started uh, this podcast is that we spoke about something uh, in psychological terms is referred to the end of history illusion. So if you have to look at where you are today and you have to think back five years from today, think back to where you were five years, five years ago, and think of the growth that you've gone through in the last five years. In most cases, when you ask people to now project themselves five years into the future, most people will kind of assume that the amount of change from now into the future isn't going to be as radical as the change when looking into the past. And the reason for that is because the way that you think when using your memory, it's a much easier way of thinking. Uh, it just doesn't take as much brain power. But if I have to now imagine into the future, this is now difficult. It's quite difficult to imagine how the future might look when I'm just thinking of myself. It's tricky. It requires, as you say, a better quality of thinking. Um, and I suppose part of my own journey is to try and understand what quality of thinking, you know, how do I improve the quality of my thinking? And it, I suppose it goes back to giving yourself space. It's about stillness. It's about being aware. 
um, that there is this thing called thinking and it's, I suppose, getting into a rhythm or a practice of trying to improve that thinking, even improving your imagination. I had a great example of this come across my plate the other day. Um, Esther Perel, the noted relationship, uh, she'd had to be called guru, but I can't think of another word right now. Um, she talked about people's marriages failing because they are locked in a concept of what marriage is. That is just a thinking pattern, right? The concept that she speaks of is marriage is A, B, C, and D. Marriage is not E, F, G, and H. That's just a concept. So what does that allow and disallow in marriages? Well, in Esther Perel's opinion, it locks people into this very tight, confining thing of what a marriage is. And in her opinion, that is the reason for a lot of failed marriages these days. That's just thinking. If we take it into the working world, if a CEO, for instance, limits the term skill to just, you know, what, what are you doing? Is, is a skill an Excel spreadsheet or defining a strategy? If, if that's all that skill is, then that's narrow. If they allow thinking to be seen as a skill, what does that open up for them? It opens up a world that was otherwise off limits. So I'm constantly amazed at how even my own thinking limits me. And when I sit down and interrogate something and I go, hold on, why am I thinking about it that way? Boy, the house of cards can come crashing down quickly, which opens up nice opportunity. But it's really interesting how unconscious we are about thinking about thinking, which is where the future comes in, in all its difficulties. Because if the thinking around future is that it's predictable, wrong. The future is scary, wrong, or unhelpful. But if you think about the future as, uh, wow, this is really an opportunity to test my agility and my nimbleness as a leader, that changes the game. Or the future, gosh, what is going to come at me now? Let's just think about all these things and develop that peripheral vision and be curious. What does that open up? So there should be a book called Thinking About Thinking. There probably is, but um, it would be a useful read. Daniel Kahneman, yeah. He wrote Thinking uh, Fast and Slow. Yeah, um, you know, one of my favorite documentary filmmakers is a guy by the name of Adam Curtis. And he's, you know, he's a bit of a conspiracy theorist. He goes into how the world was created. You know, how did, uh, how did China become so powerful? How did uh, the British create so much influence in the world? And he goes into the stories uh, and the background as to, you know, some of the ideas that created these power pockets in the world and at the end of uh, one of the documentaries that he produced he said the greatest irony and the biggest open secret is that the world can be recreated to serve people in an instant we can recreate everything from capitalism to democracy it can be redesigned to serve the world better but as you say, what it requires is that people actually think about it and actually realize that these things that we just take for granted are just mental models. They're just patterns. <laughs> that we just accept and we never challenge. As you say, 
marriage, but in the same way uh, business. Business doesn't need to be structured the way that it is. Uh, HR doesn't have to recruit people the way that they do. It can be rethought. It can be designed in a, in a more productive way. Yeah, and I think technology is really helping that because technology is kind of hacking these old processes. And I'm not, I'm not saying they're all right and I'm not saying they work well, but they certainly make the territory more challengeable and malleable. I think that's very helpful. What they kick out, as I say, can be hit or miss. But boy, I just, I just wish the world would see itself to be the malleable thing that it is. And, you know, maybe, maybe coming from my place of privilege, it's easy for me to say that and see it. And I think that's probably important to acknowledge as well. Maybe um, people dealing with stuff on you know, lower levels of Maslow's hierarchy, maybe they can't, maybe they don't have the opportunity to see the world that way. But maybe they do, because it just takes one great teacher to teach someone how to think better, and then the game changes. So it is a bit stuck, but also I feel deeply that it's not that stuck. Mm. Yeah, well, there's a, a really great philosopher by the name of Ken Wilber, and he believes that uh, people need to go through certain evolutions of consciousness. And there's no ways that you can reach a higher level of consciousness without going through the, the bottom layers. And that's not just individuals, it also relates to companies, it relates to communities, it relates to countries. Uh, so I think the world is evolving in its consciousness growth, uh, but it's slow, you know, and it, it's not a linear thing. Sometimes you have to go back <laughs> a little bit to go forward. Yeah, and, and I, think, I think that's the, um, the thing about thinking systemically is a really useful tool because, you know, I... In South Africa, there's this party called the EFF, which, you know, causes a lot of ruckus. And a lot of people sort of denigrate the EFF for all of that. My take is that they are here, so they should be here. And there must be a role that they're playing. And when that role dies down or fades away, they will fade away or they'll come to power or whatever. But it just is what it is. And, and, and that's what I think is interesting about working systemically is to go, wow, how did that happen? That's the curiosity again. Because then there's, you know, then the ego stuff drops away. And it's not about, oh, damn the EFF, you know. It's just about saying, okay, well, these guys are here. I wonder why. Yeah, such a great point. Uh, and potentially I, I hear one of your little dogs is probably saying, boy, it's lunchtime, dude. <laughs> so, uh Rowan, I think um, this has been an interesting chat. We might be going a little bit over time, uh, which is also good. But yeah, I had a great time chatting with you. I, I definitely um, have a new perspective on leadership and exactly on that point you make about performance. I've never really thought about leadership as uh, something which is a, a performance sport or something that you, you know, can pride yourself on your performance. So I definitely have a different perspective there. Yeah, thanks, John. I am... Um I love talking about these topics with smart people. It's just, it's really, it's nice for me to talk through what I think, um, just to make it a little bit more uh, settled, I suppose. And um, yeah, I just love this. I hope it was cool for your listeners. Um, I think, uh, I think, 
if I were to close with anything for business people thinking about this um, or listening to this, it would be to expand their possibility thinking about what their business can do in the world. Businesses are cool. They are fun. They are pantomimes playing out. They are complex. They are nuanced. They are beautiful, beautiful things. I, I, I talk about them as being jewels. Businesses are jewels. And my role is to help polish those jewels. I love what I do. But I really wish for business people out there to see themselves in this really awesome game. It's not, it's not this hard slog. It's actually a beautiful thing playing out. And that's probably my parting thought today. Great wisdom. Thanks, Rowan. Thank you, John. Hey, if you enjoyed uh, listening to this podcast, subscribe, uh, share with others. See you next time.